Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. ElixirConf 2023 videos are starting to come out. We've got a link to the video playlist in YouTube if you're interested. We've got Chris McCord's keynote up. We've got a bunch of stuff in there we talked a little bit about last week. They've got the, the scope struck stuff, async assign, and more. We've got Jose's keynote up. We've got Brian Cartarella's up. And then we've got Caitlin Burns up. So if you're interested in any of those, those are up right now. And next up, a web application security best practices for Beam Languages guide was put up by the EEF, or specifically the security working group with the EEF. Just wanted to pass this on as it looks like a really neat resource. It's broken out quite nicely into the different sections. It's got things like, you know, session management vulnerabilities, TLS vulnerabilities, information leakage, supply chain vulnerabilities, and just with subsections on each one of those that digs into it in much more depth. So you can actually understand what is it they're talking about and what am I looking for in my application to check for this? I really appreciate the work that goes into these types of resources for the community that's done by the Erling Ecosystem Foundation. So thanks for all that work, guys. If you want to learn more about all that, we've got a couple of episodes, uh, one, episode 134 about inside the working group with Bram, Bram Verberg, and then also episode 93, which is uh, with Michael Lubis about preventing service abuse. All right, next up, NextLS, a uh, language server from the future for Elixir. Version 0.12 was released, and this one's pretty exciting for me because it includes documentation hover functionality and go-to definition for module attributes and functions. Both of those, among the other improvements in there, are pretty critical, I think, for how language servers can be helpful for you. I haven't tested it yet, but it's out, and you should give it a shot, see how it goes. Well, if you haven't heard, there is another JavaScript runtime called Bun that came out recently that is all the rage. It looks pretty interesting, and there's now a Phoenix library to integrate that as your runtime builder, bundler, test runner of all things pointing to Bun and Phoenix. So we'll drop a link in the show notes if you're interested in that, and we'd be interested if you use it, how it works for you. This would be something that replaces or something along with ES build, right? So we have that mixed task and manager thing that Phoenix ships with now to, you know, manage ES build and the watchers and all. So this is the same thing, but for fun. What I thought was interesting is previously we've talked about Deno, D-E-N-O, which is another JavaScript runtime that was created with the idea of it being type safe and more secure because it's written in Rust. And Bun is actually, it turns out, written in Zig, Ziglang, which is interesting. It's like a C-like language that's very performant. But uh, yeah, so interesting developments in the JavaScript runtime world. And next up, the Langchain library for Elixir has been released to HexPM. So this is a library I've created. I've talked about this on the show previously. And now I've published version 0.1.0, and it's called Langchain. It's an Elixir implementation of a Langchain-style framework. So the original Langchain stuff is JavaScript or TypeScript, and there's a Python version as well. And they try to keep both of those two libraries very compatible with each other. This is the Elixir one where I'm not trying to maintain that compatibility, mainly because Everything they're doing is object-oriented, and it just didn't make sense to try and do it the way they were doing it. But I am trying to do all of the cool things that they do when they're talking to large language models. 
So really, this is a library that makes it a whole lot easier to integrate your Elixir application with an LLM like ChatGPT. And you could do some really cool stuff with it. And the library has a lot of areas to grow into. So I've got a link to where you can find it online, the GitHub. It's also on HexPM now. And at the time of this writing, I included two livebook notebooks with examples on how to use it. One is a getting started and just shows how to make calls to ChatGPT. And another one is all about how to write custom functions in Elixir and then expose those to an LLM where the LLM can say, I would like to execute this function and then have it be executed on the Elixir side and then pass the result back to the LLM where it can then finish its analysis and and keep going with the result of whatever comes back from your app. So I've published it now to invite contributions and to share it with others who also want to see Elixir play an active role in this space. I just think it's really exciting. I'd love for you to check it out and help out if that's an area of interest for you. All right, next up, Brian Cartarella's LiveView Native Keynote. We talked about that last week, but his keynote was really about giving an update on where LiveView Native is in development. And the good news is, is that it's progressing, of course, but they had to refactor some things to consolidate shared logic for all the different platforms. But during that keynote, I noticed something that caught my attention. I noticed that there was in Xdocs, when he was showing off the documentation for LiveView Native, there was so so minor, it's like totally not the point of his keynote, but... (laughs) But I noticed in Xdocs, he used tab sets to provide examples in each of the platforms. And I thought that was really, really interesting. I hadn't really seen that in, in uh, someone else's documentation on Hexdocs. A friend of the show, Rudolph, pointed it out on Twitter and uh, explained that it's a feature of Xdocs. Apparently, since version 0.30, Xdocs supports tab sets natively. So if you want to learn more about tab sets and tab sets being you know, it, you, you just got a couple of tabs and you click between them and it shows a different set of information on those tabs. doesn't navigate you anywhere. It's just hiding irrelevant info. So you, you might see it on like API documentation where it gives you an example in Ruby, gives you an example in curl and all that kind of stuff. Like that's what tab sets could be used for. If you're interested in leveraging some of that next docs, we got a link for you. It's on X docs, you know, documentation though, but we'll link you directly to it. Fly.io. It's a great place to run Elixir apps with many global regions, a private network that makes it easy to cluster your app and a powerful CLI. It's something you should really try out. Experience it for yourself at fly.io. And really, that's the end of all the Elixir specific news that we wanted to cover today. But there was a lot more going on in the general open source world that does touch us, you know, as developers, as even with the Elixir applications we're creating, we are often touching these other pieces. And we wanted to cover some of the stuff that we saw going around just in the general wider ecosystem. Except for this one, I'd be surprised if anyone touches this one. So (laughs) Lodash recently declared issue bankruptcy. So if you're not familiar with Lodash, it's a modern JavaScript utility library delivering modularity, performance, and extras. It's got a lot of history. It's got over... 57,000 GitHub stars, which is a lot in GitHub stars, whatever that means. It's been around for a long time. I remember using it just like a long time ago, years ago. I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, I used uh, Lodash a lot, especially when I was writing JavaScript spas, like the single page applications where you have a lot of stuff going on in the front end. Lodash had a lot of functional inspired library code, which made it really easy to iterate over lists of things and, and call. It was just a really nice, handy tool set. 
that was my exposure to it. And since I've been doing a lot more Phoenix Live View and a lot less with front-end spas, I really haven't been touching it. So it's been years. Functional in the sense that like you can import just a function like that does one thing. So it's supposedly lightweight. Even pre-ES6, like to iterate, to, to like map over things, it was more difficult <laughs> in older JavaScript. So that's why you would bring in Lodash. Or Lodash has like utility functions like debouncing. Yes, debouncing is very common, so might as well put it in a big utility library like Lodash, import just that debouncing stuff, and be on your merry way. Another thing they did that I, I liked was they made their functions chainable so that you could call them in succession. And they were also functional in the aspect of just passing in arguments and getting a result back, like not building whole objects of state and stuff like that. Ah, yes. This brings back memories of people currying all over our JavaScript code base with Lodash curry. Oh, the good old days. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, anyways, they declared issue bankruptcy and they closed every single issue and open pull request. And it appears this was in preparation for a big V5 release. They just wanted to wipe it out and start with a clean state, I guess. And taking this action, it created a little bit of a stir, but, you know, we thought it was kind of an interesting way to deal with many years of old issues. And, you know, if you're releasing this big, huge change and you've got all of these like issues pointing back to V1 through four and you're now on five, I guess I can kind of see where they're going with this. <laughs> but, you know, it's important to get the messaging like this right. It's hard as a project maintainer when you've got so many people watching I'm like mentally going through all of my projects and seeing if I can declare bankruptcy <laughs> on, on any of them. <laughs> well, like when you think about what it would take to the amount of time it would take to like try and actually go through these, I mean, it's days and days of like eight hour days trying oh, to just painful. go through that. And none of it's rewarding and it's just all administrative stuff. And if you've ever worked at a company where they would just say, you know, we're just deleting the entire backlog from our JIRA. It's like, yeah, because people were just throwing in stuff and the overhead for processing, mentally processing all that data was just too high. It's like, we're just going to go from here going forward. Just mentioning this, like if you're an open source project maintainer and you have this huge backlog, this could be an option. <laughs> you, you might tick some people off. And that's really where the messaging becomes important. <laughs> you know, I'll put in a plug for Linear here. It has this really cool feature where if something sits in this triage column or triage state for too long, it automatically closes it. Ah. And I love getting notifications saying this issue was auto closed because it sat in triage for too long. And I'm like, you know, I guess I was never going to do that. So this is completely <laughs> fine. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, obviously they need a bigger mature tool to manage all their issues. I think they should migrate to Jira. That's where they should have put it. That's true. More workflow stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and next up, so we want to talk a little bit about Ziglang, right? So Bun, written in Zig. We've talked about Ziglang before. Yes, this is not Elixir, but we've talked about it because Ziggler is a library that we talk about frequently in the Elixir space that lets you import and use Zig code very closely bundled with your Elixir. While this is not Elixir related, what we saw is a recent blog post on the Ziglang blog where they made the case that bounties, like project bounties, damage open source projects. And specifically, they're kind of talking about these VC-backed bounties where they're just saying, build this thing for us, and whoever builds it first wins. You know, and that kind of thing is what they're talking about. And so what they're saying is those types of bounties foster competition at the expense of cooperation. 
the bounties are utterly simplistic way of dealing with the business management side of creating software, I thought it was worth talking about some of these points. Because if you have a project and someone were to come in and start offering a bounty, these are the problems you might encounter, right? Where instead of trying to scout out and find suitable candidates for who's the right person to implement this change that's really important for us that we value in this project. But instead, you're letting it be like become a battle royale where it's just whoever wants to jump in and try and fix this first wins at the expense of everyone else. And another way of looking at that was instead of creating a, a clear contract where you take on some of the risk, you implicitly put all of the risk on the contestants because a partial solution doesn't win anything. So it's like, there's no risk for me. I'm just putting up money to get what I want. All of the contributors who are trying to implement that change, they are the losers. Like they take on risk for trying to even implement something because if their solution doesn't get all the way through or whatever, then they just get nothing. And another one that I thought was very interesting and prescient really was this idea of you're not encouraging due diligence, right? It is encouraging whoever's first because they win is what you're rewarding. So it's kind of thoughtless, reckless action is what's being encouraged, right? So rather than sit back and think, hmm, what really is the best way to fix this and solve this problem? It's just someone powers through and gives something and just whatever makes the test pass, right? For the the, the test suite. On their blog post, they link to some of the issues that brought this up, like some of the GitHub issues specifically that were being mentioned and as what caused this whole discussion. It seems kind of a, like a painful situation. It also, it encourages people to produce code that's not necessarily maintainable, right? Because they aren't interested in the long-term maintenance of it. They just had to win the money for that initial deliverable and they, boom, I'm done, I'm stepping away. The point they make is on projects that are less radical than Zig, it might put pressure on the development team to actually accept these winning submissions, even though it's not necessarily the most thought out or maintainable solution. And so they're just saying, in general, this is bad for open source projects. It's not the best way to financially support open source projects. All right, last up, everybody's got a database and you probably run Postgres. And so heads up, Postgres 16 has been released. Before I go into all of the big announcements of, of Postgres 16, just something I saw on the Twitter sphere, I refuse to call it by its new name. <laughs> there was a lot of unintentional, I think, misinformation. None of it's malicious, right? But I think somebody had asked ChatGPT what the new features of Postgres 16 was, and it came up with like some really interesting things, but total hallucinations. <laughs> <laughs> and so that spread <laughs> maybe more than it should have. And so if you see anything about GPU accelerated joins in SQL, that's that's not right. <laughs> that's totally fake. That's what we need more of in our life right now. <laughs> fake news, AI generated fake news. <laughs> <laughs> but that is kind of compelling. Like what would that what kind of world would that be to have GPU accelerated joints? Okay. Well, anyway, so if you see that on on your news sphere and and it sounds like people are like believing it, like it, thumbs up, subscribe to it. <laughs> yeah, <so laughs> just just be aware that's fake. All right, now to the real stuff on it. So I'll hit the highlights here, but Postgres 16 includes performance improvements on left and right joins, among other operations, such as determining distinct things. It adds more syntax from the SQL and JSON standard, which is pretty interesting. 
the advent of JQ, and it's not really JSON standard, but JQ kind of has this way of like navigating through JSON structures, right, and querying that kind of stuff. So think along the lines of that, but inside a SQL. So it's not backwards compatible, obviously, so you have to make sure everyone's on Postgres 16, but querying nested fields in JSON could get easier in your SQL queries, which is pretty nice. Also, it introduces PGStat.io. It's a new source of key input-output metrics for granular analysis of I.O. access patterns. So if you're trying to figure out why something's slow, use that. Let's see. Another one is users can perform logical replication from a standby instance, meaning that a standby can publish logical changes to other servers. So you can think of like a, you know, primary replicating to a standby. Standby doesn't get traffic. That standby is probably uh, wasting some CPU cycles <laughs> a little bit free. Maybe have that one replicate to another Postgres server that is, you know, for a different thing, maybe for analysts or BI or something. So that's pretty interesting. But maybe the biggest thing that, that seems to be interesting is the active, active kind of replication. What this means is that both the main and the follower are both actively replicating to each other. I've got a link out to crunchy data that can go a lot more into this and give you some examples, but I'll give you the gist of it is that active active replication when referring to databases is the ability to write to any of the two or more Postgres instances and each have full live set of data. And prior to Postgres 16, to even make this work with Postgres, you had to accomplish some special processing to prevent that transaction loop back, right? So like the origin server will will send, you know, some changes up to the other one. And then that other one would send those same changes back to the original one. So it's just getting to this like infinite recursion kind of kind of problem there. So you had to do some special things to avoid that. All right. Well, the transaction loop back occurs when a transaction is replicated from the source to the target and then replicated back to the source. Postgres 16, there is now a feature that solves this problem. So when creating a subscription, the subscriber asks the publisher to ignore transactions that were applied via the replication apply process. This is possible to the due to the origin messages in the wall stream. All that to say is that it's smarter, faster, stronger, better, all those things. <laughs> so if you are running Postgres 16, at least for the JSON, you know, querying, like, I don't know, there's lots of interesting things here. Every Postgres major release has some pretty neat things. But a good quality of life upgrade is that JSON querying syntax, which is pretty neato. Anyway, that was an also some big open source news out in the community. Yeah, what I thought is interesting about that is the idea of like if I have on, on like a, a fly hosted system where I have multiple Postgres instances, previously I, I might have once designated as the primary and then I have a local close to me uh, replica, which is a read replica, which is very fast for reads, but I, you know, you can't write to it because it's read only. But then mm-hmm. if there was a way to then do local writes and have those be replicated back, that could be super cool. I think Fly needs to look at this. Now, one thing I will say is just doing Postgres upgrades on my local machine are always painful when you get to these major upgrade ones because yeah. like, you have to do this special upgrade your database because it won't restart automatically. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so that's that's the only pain point I <laughs> I feel with that. I Every time I upgrade on my Mac, it's like I have to like force remove a bunch of folders because I, I don't have anything worth keeping but it always gets borked i got i just got to delete and <laughs> start from just scratch. reformat yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Awesome. Well, we've covered a lot there. We covered some Elixir news and then a lot of general open source community news. So hopefully that's all something valuable. You find something in there you want to dig deeper on. If there's anything that you think we should be covering, please reach out on Twitter or social media anywhere and just point out things that we should be covering and talking about. But that's all we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.